Okay, so tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has been um, over Judah, the southern tribe, for seven and a half years. The whole thing has happened where Abner tried to reconcile the northern kingdoms, kingdoms of 11 tribes with David and the tribe of Judah. And then Abner was killed by Joab. Then Ishabeth, the son of Saul, was murdered. And then it's all just kind of chaotic right now. The 11 tribes don't have a king. They don't have Abner. David is the king in the south. And after seven and a half years, after almost two decades, the time for David to become the king over Israel what was prophesied and promised and symbolically recognized when Samuel anointed him with the oil in his father's house so many years before, after all the trials and tribulations of running from Saul, his father-in-law in the wilderness for years, and then being there in Judah for seven and a half years while the northern neighbor is still hanging on to what was, the time has come for the kingdom of Israel under the reign of King David to be established. And that's our background as we come to chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David was made, made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, for, uh, he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Well, it took us a while to get here. <laughs> it took us half of 1 Samuel and the first part of 2 Samuel. It took us a while to get here. Isn't that how it is in life? It generally takes a while to come to that place where you've really just found the sweet spot, or as we saw in the life of Isaac in the book of Genesis, the well of spaciousness. If you recall, Isaac, the son of promise, Abraham's son, when he was in the land and his father had passed on, all the promises of God for the entire universe, trillions of galaxies, they're, they're on one person's head, Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah. And there in the land, he had the conflict where the herdsmen of the people that lived in the land, and there was the well of strife, and there was the well of contention. And then during the famine, he came to the well of spaciousness, and God prospered him. He sowed bountifully, and he became very prosperous. He's a prosperous man. It was an incredible experience. He came to the well of spaciousness. And here we see David, after all these journeys, like Isaac, all the arduous process, all the time put in, all the things that you can't control, maintaining a good attitude and a positive perspective, trusting the promise of God, having faith when things are going well and you defeat the bear, the lion, and Goliath, and having faith when it's all going wrong and you escape from the rock of escape and it was completely out of your control. Faith for the victory and faith through the defeats and the mountaintop and the valley. And now here we go. It took a while. He's not the high school teenager, senior, when he was anointed. He's not the young man in his 20s conquering his thousands, his ten thousands, or the, the, the madman, you know, pretending to be crazy with the Philistines, and he's, he's a man. He's become quite a man, and seven and a half years waiting on the fullness of the promises has refined him quite a bit, I'm sure, in the things of the Lord. Again, we get so much insight on David when we read the Psalms. 
There's 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, and a good portion of them were written by David, including all the first book, the 41 Psalms. And just reading them on my own right now, it's just like, wow, David, just like, they, they take on meaning because we've gotten historical context, but when you read the Psalms, it's like, this is what he's saying. He's going through all these things, and it's very insightful. And here he is. It reminds us that in our own lives, there are seasons of preparation, times that are very arduous and difficult, but sooner or later, when we have faith and we keep our eyes on the Lord, the testings, the trials, the tribulations, and even the tragedies will work together for good. And so long as we're going one day at a time with the Lord, sincerely seeking to obey him as best we can and being intentional about it, proactive to go after the things of the Lord, Matthew 6, to seek first his righteousness, his kingdom. In due time, this type of day will happen. David didn't manufacture anything to make this day happen. For seven and a half years, he's been faithful with what was entrusted to him. And now, under the events and circumstances that brought him sorrow, he had the table of peace with Abner where they made peace. It was a beautiful day. Then Joab kills Abner. There's the grief of the memorial service and the burial of Abner there in Hebron. And then, of all things, then Ishabeth is assassinated. And that's grief and sorrow, and that's heartache. And, and just like seven and a half years before, when they're looking at the remains of Ziglag, the house is burnt down. Here they are now. The entire nation is like, okay, where do we go from here? But David is now ready for what he's going to be entrusted with. I thought about this with Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Costa Mesa in recent times. All those years when he pastored small, four-square Pentecostal churches in the Southwest. See, we think of someone like Pastor Chuck and the whole Calvary movement and seeing him in the 80s when I first went to Big Calvary and the zenith of ministry. And but all those years when he's raising four children working at Safeway as a grocery clerk, you know, a cashier, while pastoring small churches and all that he went through and the drama that small churches can bring under different circumstances all that he went through. I mentioned this, but years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Tucson, and Pastor Chuck was the marquee speaker about 10 years ago. And as I sat there, I remember in his story that he pastored a four-square church in Tucson when he was nobody, 50s, in the 50s. It was in the 50s, for sure. And there he was, a young Protestant minister trying to raise his family, take care of Kay, carve out a living in Tucson. And 40, 50 years later, I'm there at this pastor's conference with over 1,000 people in this large campus of the Calvary Chapel in Tucson. And he's telling these pastors, these leaders and their wives to just keep it simple, teach the word. He didn't teach anything profound that night. I remember it was just really, just like, just trust the Lord, teach his word, be spirit-filled, be flexible, all those things that Pastor Chuck would say. And the irony of it all is on the, when we left the next day, I was on the same flight out of Tucson with him and Roger Wing to Phoenix. And then we're on the same flight from Phoenix back to Santa Ana. So I got to spend some time with Pastor Chuck that day. And I just kept thinking, like, what must it be like? What must have been like to be Pastor Chuck that, at that conference in, like, say, 2010 compared to being there in 1950? just a reminder all of us whether we're younger or older it's a journey it's a process and we keep growing 
and we don't have to strive to manufacture things God's doing. We do want to be faithful, and we do want to go through the open doors, and we want to learn from mistakes and, and make adjustments and pivot when God's showing us something new and, and say not be stuck in a rut. But in the end, if we're faithful with these little things, truly God will entrust us with more. And David was faithful. And even above them, but beyond that, is the sovereignty of God's call in his life. So even when we feel like we're failures and we have our blemishes that embarrass us and, and make us feel ashamed that God would do anything with us, we have to remember there is a sovereign call and election on our lives. The Bible makes that very clear. Very clear. So for the, the David who is the madman, the singer, the killer of the lion, about to be killed by all of his employees, led by Joab himself probably, that man... At this point in time, he's still standing. He's far from perfect. He loves the Lord. He's sincere. He's going forward. And he's been faithful for seven and a half years being king of one tribe. And now the tribes come to him. It is it's just a reminder that if we just stay faithful and just keep doing the right thing daily, that those plans and purposes of God, as long as we're willing to step out in faith, we're going to always be open to him. And he will bring to pass in our lives that greater, bigger purpose as we go forward in the Lord. I went to Israel in 92 with a group from Pat, with Pat Robertson put together when I lived in Virginia. They, they had a travel agency, so they invited like 30 pastors from Virginia Beach. And I do mean everything from like the Brethren to the Pentecostals and anything apostolic, you know, Mennonites. We were quite a group. There's a shaky coalition on that bus going around Israel. And uh, there was a woman pastor that was Pentecostal and it's an interesting story where near the end of the trip, she said, I, I really believe God's got a call in your life, and I, I want to pray over you. And I was like, and this is when I was like, you just got to, like, I'm like, no, it's not happening, but okay. Like, I was like, you know, fundamentalist, like, fundamental, like, uppercase kind of, you know, like, I'm like, is this bad, heretical? And so she prayed over me. And I'll never forget when she prayed over me, she talked about a fire and young people and all these things, that God was going to do something that was on a national level. And I'm like, listen, I pastor a church of like 60 people in a shopping center. But I'm like, okay, well, she had a big vision, bigger than mine, that's for sure. I was like, but when she was praying, I remember, when she was praying, I was like this. Okay, true story. Years later, when Pastor Chuck allowed me to teach in the sanctuary, at Calvary Costa Mason 2000, and God brought me Jeremy Camp, and he brought me Phil Wickham, and he brought me all these people, Tim Chaddock, Dominic Bali, all these people. There was a time when I was praying, and the Lord brought me back to that woman praying for me and said, this is the fulfillment of that word. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, in the context, it was the fullness of something God spoke over my life. See, I didn't have a great plan to get Jeremy Camp, Phil Wickham, Bobby Brown, Scott Cunningham, Joe Henschel, all these kids, and Dominic Bali, Zach Vestines, all, the, all these incredible people. I just, God opened the sanctuary for me, and then he brought all the people to me. It was his purposes on my life, and that's why I'm telling you this story, because he has those purposes on your life. But when, I always remember when it was really getting traction, worship generation began to really take off, and I was telling people, hey, Jeremy Camp's bigger than all you think he is, and Phil Wickham is incredible, even though you think he's only 16. And in that process, God brought me back to that woman praying over me on the bus on that journey and said, this is the fulfillment of what she said. And he reminded me that he spoke his vision to my life before he brought it to pass, just like David when the elders come to him. But of course, you can imagine theologically, I'm like, wait a second. 
Now, hold on here, because, you know, you got to, I'm like, so you mean the woman pastor who I would never, like, be for, she's prophesied over me, and it came to pass. You know what I'm saying? I had to rethink my theology, right? Like, stay with me here. Like, I had to, wait a second, I got to rethink everything right now. Because that was a prophetic word. Because in my mind, up until that point, a guy would never use a woman pastor. Like, that's, that's like, you know, that's like heretical. And even though I wouldn't ordain a woman pastor or think that way, I had to realize at that point that God profoundly used that woman in my life. And the greatest thing he ever did, the worship generation music movement between all those guys was spoken of prophetically through a Pentecostal woman pastor on a bus in Israel in 1992, 10 years before it happened. So the moral of the story is two things. One, God is sovereignly in control and doing a bigger picture than you think, and he'll bring it to pass like David here. He'll bring the 11 tribes to you. Just wait on the Lord. And he's always doing more than you ever think he's doing in his universe. God is always doing more than we ever think, and so we have to be open. Not unbiblical, but we need to be open to realize God's universal view of a trillion galaxies isn't limited to my little petty mind's theology on planet Earth. And we need to remember that because I have found through legalism that we will hinder the work of the Lord in our own life, let alone other people's lives, because we don't get to be a part of it. And it's a lose-lose. So I think it's worth saying, because we do support women in ministry, that like Sarah Hill for 20 years in Kauai, she never set out to be the youth leader. She's been a youth leader for 20 years. She's still trying to find a man to step up and replace her so she can go back to California and do the next chapter of her life. Sarah Yardley does everything she does in, in uh, England, and I'm not going to get ordained as an Anglican bishop, which I think she is right now. That's her business. But I know God's using her. And I'm not going to give an account for her being an Anglican priest or whatever she is. I'm going to give an account for me in this flock, in this study right now. It's just a reminder, like Pastor Chuck used to say, the older you get and the more you mature in the faith, the less denominational you become. And so many of the rigid things I had when I was age 30, pastoring a small church in Virginia, God just helped me realize, like, you know what, just exhale, and it's a bigger picture, and trust in the Lord. There's a sovereign plan over your life, and as we obey the Lord, he'll bring it to pass. There's a sovereign plan over my life, and as we obey the Lord, he'll bring it to pass. And as we let his sovereign plans work in our life, that divine destiny and purpose that we're created for, you know, if we mature in it, we'll understand he's doing other things in other people's lives that just may not fit in our, our understanding of how we think God can and should work. So in other words, have a biblical vision, but have a bigger vision and let God run his universe and definitely let him rule our hearts. Be faithful, let it bring to pass. These leaders, they're pretty funny too. <laughs> For seven and a half years, they let Ishaboth be their king and Abner call the shots. And you know, what did we see last chapter? When Abner came to David, when he finally broke with the Lord, but broke before the Lord and said, yep, David's the guy. You know, the Lord do to me so awesome if I don't give the kingdom to David right now. And then he went to the elders of Israel and said, you know that God said David's the man. The Lord spoke this. Remember, Abner on the last day, pretty much he was alive, he quotes the Lord's confirmation on David's life. He finally surrenders to the will of the Lord after seven and a half years of being the one in control of the northern kingdoms, the 11 tribes, under Ishabeth and the house of Saul. And look what happens here. The same thing. Now, this is where David could be small-minded. 
You've waited seven and a half years to be in charge of the entire corporation, all the 11 tribes. And like, hey, we want you to be the CEO. Yeah, right, because I'm the only standing CEO. Abner's gone, Ishabeth is gone, Michael's in my palace or whatever. Yeah, of course you want me to do that. I'm the last person standing. I'm the obvious choice to be king, but he's not like that. That's what life should teach you is to not be small-minded and petty, but to be gracious in the defeat of your foes and in the exaltation of you with God's call on your life. David didn't say, what were you guys doing for seven and a half years? We could have been seven years into this, but you guys and your whole little thing. And, but he didn't do that. But I find it interesting that the 11 tribes and their leaders, look what it says. In times past, you're the guy that got it done. Right, we all know that. Everyone knows David's resume and the song that he killed his 10,000s. And they say, uh, the Lord said to you. So just like Abner, they're quoting the call of God spoken over David's life. But you know what? For people like the rulers of Israel and particularly Abner, as we talked about on Saturday in Topical, like we'd say to our kids for years, some people don't get it and they're never going to get it. Some people don't and they will. And you never know which, which it is. You might have an opinion. But some people don't get it, but then they do. And Abner didn't get it, but then he did. And these leaders, they didn't get it, but then they did. So we want to hope and pray that people who really know what God wants to do in their life that we care about, even though they're fighting the Lord and kicking against the goads, whether it's one person, Abner, or the leaders of 11 tribes, we've just got to hold out faith and hope that God can work, will work, because it's not for us to ever throw anyone under the bus that God's not going to work. We don't know the end. As long as everyone's alive, we do not know the end. And even when they separate eternity, we don't know all the factors anyways. Again, David's the man who doesn't put the spear of Saul through Saul, and therefore he's not another Saul. He's David. He gives the spear back to Saul. And we see the same person here, how he handles this. Let's go forward. Forget about the past. Forget about this and that. Let's just go forward. Come on, let's go forward. Like, yeah, you're the guy. We all know it. It's all good. We good? We're good? Yeah, boom, we're good. Let's go. Let's go forward. Let's do this. It's beautiful. There's a lot to it. There's a lot there in those first five verses. Verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. That's in Jerusalem. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall, be chief, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, Lebanon, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he'd exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he'd come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, of course the great Solomon. Ibahar, Eliashu, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphilet. Well, he's going to keep 
This is going to, of course, the downfall for David, of course, is going to be all the, multiplying the women and multiplying the children. This will be his downfall, and it will bear its consequences, and surely it's the blemish on his life, which the Scripture makes very clear as we progress in this book. That being said, I want to draw attention to the Jebusites. Now, they were there in Jerusalem. Something about David where he, he, he loathed the blind and the lame. And there's something repulsive about physical deformities that can repel us. And I think I, I, think I understand why that is so. Because since we were created in beauty and flawless in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're beautiful, the perfect man, the perfect woman... When you see flawed birth defects in human beings and even the animal kingdom, it's something unnatural about it. It's repulsive. It's, it's uh, mutated, if you will. And, of course, it can happen in life anyways. You can get injuries where you'd be blinded or be made uh, paralyzed or something of that sort. And this is very interesting. Now, David, it says here, so if you're focused on the glory and you think, like, anything less than the glory is the fault of those people, because remember the Pharisees when they came... To Je- you know, the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who sinned, this, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And he said, no, no one, but for, for the glory of God, this man was born blind. So see, Jesus, a thousand years later, elevated the concept about physical handicaps and how God uses them for his glory. He did that with the blind, right? It says here, David repul- re- re- despised the blind, but Jesus one greater than David, the son of David, when he came upon the same scene in Jerusalem in the same area a thousand years later, he says, no one's at fault here. But the concept that someone did evil or bad, that this kid's, this person's blind, is somehow related to either his parents' sin or his own sin. And even when the blind man said, this I know, once I was blind, now I see, it's all there in the Gospel of John, the Pharisee said, you're a sinner because you're born blind. Well, whatever, this I know, once I was blind, now I see. So when has God ever done that? Because they were saying, no way a man of God would heal you. And he's like, well, you know, I was born blind, now I see, so you go figure it out. And they expelled him from the congregation, the synagogue. Also in David's life, Mephibosheth, from the house of Saul, he was the one that was paralyzed when he was dropped at the death of Saul. So when Saul died in battle, the maidservant ran with him, and he dropped and became paralyzed. Mephibosheth becomes a very good friend of David's. David brings him to the palace. He eats at the table of the king and is the, one of the best friends of David from the house of Saul. So it is ironic that when David is being established at the age of four, like around 40 is when his kingdom's coming to power, that we see this thing in him where he has it against anyone that's lame, physical handicaps, because in his perception, it mars the beauty of God, and therefore there's sin involved, and there's something wrong with these people. That's how people think, and often animals reject handicapped animals, right? Like, you know, if there's something wrong with a puppy, it's blind, the mother will often reject it. It it works like that in the animal kingdom as well. There's something about that. I mean, when you, you know, the doctors who do abortions, they love to say your kid's going to be Down syndrome, and then get you to abort. When Luke Caldwell, our good friend in Boise, he's adopted so many children, five, four from China, all Down syndrome, physically handicapped, Tucker and the others, and then his daughter that he got from Ukraine who was never allowed to leave a crib, as, and she was almost like a teenager when he got her. 
So he's got the one Ukrainian daughter and the Chinese children as well. He told me the story that when he went to China to adopt one of his kids there, and it might have been Beijing or Shanghai, but he had the kid, and it's physically handicapped, it's uh, Down syndrome, and he said as he went through the city, people were hissing at him. That the people hissed. They were hissing like... Because it's repulsive. And in that culture, the Chinese culture, it was unrestrained. That's what human beings do. And of course, Hitler tried to exterminate anybody and everybody that had any kind of a handicap. The death camps originally were targeted people with physical and mental handicaps. Eugenics, you know, the whole idea behind eugenics is that you breed a perfect human like you breed perfect dogs. Like, so dog breeders, they breed properly, and you get like the perfect boxer, the perfect cavalier, the perfect Irish setter. And the idea is eugenics, that with better, better breeding and better whatnot, you get a better quality dog. And you, you, you breed out the, the weaknesses of the breed. Well, Hitler and his guys, their whole idea was eugenics with human beings, and thus the Aryan race and all the concepts that those guys held to, that they would produce a, a superior human being. And thus they saw Jews as subhuman, uh, and, and therefore what they did in the death camps is just them getting rid of subhuman beings and including the, the deaf and the lime and the lame, just like David here. So this is a common thing in human history because most human beings see no value or see less value. One of the angriest I've ever been in my entire life was during COVID when Belle, my daughter-in-law, was going to deliver Wilkie, our grandson, right at the zenith of the first wave of COVID. Luke couldn't be in the hospital with her. And Wilkie was having fetal distress at 37 weeks. He just wasn't moving around as much. You couldn't get anyone to see her. It was, you know, just all this miscommunication and none of going to deliver and Luke can't be there and all this stuff. Well, she went for a, a, like a sonogram kind of thing a week before the due date. And the nurse told her, you should have aborted this baby. He's going to be Down syndrome. And I thought, well, first of all, who in the medical field would ever say that to anyone? Like, you went to nursing school for five years, ten years, whatever, and here's this young girl in her early 20s during COVID at 37, 38 weeks, and you're telling her she should have aborted her baby, and you're telling her it's going to be Down syndrome. But see, fear works like that. And we had to help her take that thought captive and work through it. I was never so angry at the medical field than I was at that nurse who spoke that lie and that evil, that venom from the pit of hell, from the devil himself, to my precious daughter-in-law over my beautiful two-year-old grandson, Wilkie, a week before he was born. And how I wanted to file a lawsuit against the medical staff at that hospital in Denver, but just kind of like David, like, what are you going to do? She's got bigger issues than us being offended. Wilkie was born, a high stressful level pregnancy. Wilkie's amazing. Wilkie's thriving, and we love Wilkie. But for a nurse to say something like that shows she despises the blind, the lame, and the deformed as she sees it. And this is why it's such a key tenet in my worldview that every life matters. Every life has value. And it's never for us to determine the significance of judge and jury of God's universe, of which life stays and which life doesn't. It's a very slippery slope.
to go in that place of judge and jury. Because racism is one thing, which is also judge and jury. But once you decide who lives and who doesn't, that's a whole other level of it. And human beings do it in every generation all over planet Earth. It's, it's in the nature. Which brings us to the beauty of Jesus Christ, which, who is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? No one has ever seen the Father, but the Son, the only begotten of the Father, he has declared the heart of the Father to us. And isn't it beautiful that when Jesus is ministering in the Gospels, more than not, he's ministering to the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the dumb? Isn't it beautiful? Parents exasperated with kids that can't speak. Men in their 30s exasperated because they have to beg for food their entire life. They can't go out and just get a job and build some wealth and have a wife and have a family, but they lay on a mat and beg for food, for empathy, from people that are going to the temple to serve God who won't let them in the temple. Aren't you glad that when Jesus comes on the scene, he shows us the heart of God for all humanity? Aren't you glad that the prophets said that the Messiah would come and the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the mute would speak, and the dead would rise? Aren't you glad that's who we serve when we're praising these songs before service with Jeff and when we serve in our children's ministry and we lead painting classes on Thursday night to the women? Aren't you glad that that's who we serve? Aren't you glad, like, David's a good guy, but I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't worship David. I grew up with two blind cousins my entire life with Kurt and Kate. I don't curse them. Actually, I respect them greatly. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ lifts up every soul in the human experience and values every soul? Aren't you glad that he does not not go into Jerusalem because of the lame outside the temple or the blind or the deformed or the Down syndrome? Aren't you glad that when Jesus walks planet Earth, he touches the leper and the leper's cleansed and the leper doesn't defile him? Aren't you glad that's who we serve as, when we serve Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad we're not a political rally, some weird religious system? Aren't you glad we're right around King Jesus tonight, the son of David? And by the way, one last thing about David here. He's got some growing to do, doesn't he? Who wouldn't you know Joab the henchman is the guy that went in there and got it done? And Joab's always about self-promotion, and he'll cut down anybody, anything in his way. Going right through the blind, the lame, and the deaf, and all that, that's, that's nothing for Joab. He already shed the blood of war in the time of peace when he took Abner's life. Joab's the one that took the city. And he became the chief commander for David, but he's not listed in the 30 mighty men. So you can exalt yourself and raise yourself up, but it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to say you're a great man or a great woman and you're listed with those great people. He omitted from the records of greatness. But with David, isn't it beautiful that later on Mephibosheth, the lame person, sits at his banqueting table every night as his dear friend? See, we always got to keep growing. We can't have prejudices against people of other ethnicities or gender. We can't have prejudices against people for different things and different stuff. We're on planet Earth to become like Jesus and to see humanity the way Jesus sees humanity. He's always broadening our vision and expanding our heart. Jesus is so inclusive for all, but he is exclusive in that you come to him through the blood, by the promises, and on our knees. But isn't it beautiful? So not only is Jesus the one who's so much greater than David in this kind of a sad story, but what's also beautiful is that God didn't let David stay there in that place 
where he despised people based upon his 40 years of prejudices he already had when he looked down on people. For whatever reason, like a Pharisee, but for the rest of his life, God brought a lame man to eat at the banqueting table every night with him. And aren't you glad God brings those people in your life so you won't be like that? Seriously. Aren't you glad that God brings those people in your life so you won't be like that? Because there's one thing to be like that at 40. It's completely unacceptable when you're 80. Because you can fix it between 40 and 80, but when you're 80 and you, can't, you haven't fixed it, you're probably just going to be a vile, vulgar person in assisted living, spewing venom because you never got it and didn't work through it. Praise the Lord that King Jesus loves all those that we might naturally be repulsed by. And praise the Lord with his heart being put in our heart by his spirit, we'll become more like King Jesus to the people of the world that their neighbors hiss at them when they walk down the street. It's a beautiful story because Jesus makes it beautiful. Verse 17. Now, Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went out and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtlessly deliver uh, the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, the idols, the Philistine idols. And uh, David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up, uh, circle around behind them, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sounds of the march on the top of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you, strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. He basically drove them out of land. The irony of this one is, I think of David's buddies to the Philistines, right? Remember, he's going to be one of the chief, remember chief stewards? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a lifetime deal. He'll be one of my chief stewards. Yeah. Can you imagine those guys rolling out? And there's David. I always wonder if he had Goliath's sword. It's like, that'd be pretty intimidating to show up for war with the Israelites and see David there with all 12 tribes holding Goliath's sword. Like, that would be a psychological advantage for sure. When the armies are lined up, like, just like, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm just like, this is over. Because it's the, the battle is the Lord's, and David would say that. Some men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. That's what David said in the Psalms. <laughs> it's like, you just leave that guy going like, this guy, bear, lion, Goliath. And he's definitely not drooling on his beard acting like a crazy guy. It's a bad dude over there on the other side of the valley. So they got whooped. The battle is the Lord's. Like, yet again, we see David inquiring of the Lord, getting confirmation, goes it, but then he inquires the second time. God's like, not this time. It's going to go this way. See, God's always trying to teach us new things. It's not always the same. We can't, we can't fall back on old wineskins. We can't fall back on broken cisterns. We need fresh anointing and the fresh holiness of the Lord, the fresh move of the Spirit in our life, because he wants to do new things. We can't live off the broken cisterns like God said to the prophet Jeremiah. We need living water. God's doing new things. Just because he did it this way last year for victory doesn't mean that's how he's going to do victory this year. Because he did the youth ministry this way three years ago and didn't do anything last year and he's doing it this way now. We can't, it's always new. It's always fresh. It's always forward. Hey, Lord, do we do this way? No, go around, go around the mulberry trees. And by the way, when you hear them, move quickly. Move quickly. 
See, God's in the details, and he wants to teach us new things. He, he wants to teach us different ways how he brings about victory. Love it. He never wants us to be on autopilot. He never wants to go like, well, that's the way God always did it. That's how we do it. Like, he never wants us to be there. He wants us to be fresh, like a, like a fresh game plan every day, like a, a new thing in these new seasons. Like, he wants us to be fresh. He doesn't want us to be stale and rigid. He doesn't want us to presume that we're going to defeat the Philistines like straight up in their face like last time. No. Seek the Lord's like, no, let's do it a different way. Let me show you how I work this way. Let's do something just a little bit different. Let's bring, let's do victory this way. I'll show you how it works this way. I'll broaden your vision. I'll give you more knowledge and understanding and wisdom for life. Because if you only know that way, that's all you're going to know. So why don't you seek me and I'll give you some new knowledge and some new understanding. I'll teach you a new way. And it'll broaden your concept. You'll have a bigger vision. You'll have a your greater personal equity in life experiences when someone comes for advice. You'll, you'll, you can't just like, this is how you fight the Philistines. Straight on. You know, oh, Goliath's sword. Like, no, like, it could go this way, it could go that way. See, that's the, that's the diversity and the, the varieties that God gives our life to teach us a broader scope. I love it. But those Philistine guys, they got whooped twice. And I don't even know what they said when they went home. But they all know David's the king in Israel. And they underestimated what he could bring to planet Earth when they tried to make him a chief guardian for life. One of the chief guardians. Chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to, to Baal Judah to bring up the ark of, the God, of God, whose name is called the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Uh-oh. Remember, I'm supposed to carry it on the poles. And brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out on the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on the kinds of instruments of fir wood, and on harps and string instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. When they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord on that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark, and the Lord was with him in the city of David. But David took aside took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So if you know the scriptures, you know the big mistake here is that the ark of the covenant was to be carried on those gold poles. There can be a lot of liberties and freedoms that God gives us in the human experience, but there are absolute things. (laughs) And we need to know when it's an absolute, like Titus cannot be circumcised to be saved. Paul the Apostle, and when it's a compromise, Timothy can be circumcised to help facilitate the ministry where we're going. And we need wisdom to recognize those things. But make note of this. <laughs> Nobody puts the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. So when we do things that are like against the Scriptures, clearly and definitively against the Scriptures, we're just taking the Ark of the Covenant we're putting on a cart. It looks religious. We can play music. But it doesn't match up with the clear, absolute things of the Word of God. And thus, 
the problem was in place. How David could neglect such an important detail on the transportation of the ark, who can even know? But it was neglected. And see, a king can multiply his wives and concubines and have lots of kids and control like billions of dollars of wealth, which David did. But you still got to carry the ark of God the way God says to carry it. Yeah, money can get you a lot of things. It can buy you a lot of stuff, a lot of power, fame, and all these things. But listen, man, God's God. And just because you own everything and you're the boss of everything and doesn't mean you can just put the ark on a cart. It's a good reminder. There is equality with salvation. There is equality with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our life. There is equality in the promises of God being applied to our life. Equality in the sense that they are equally availed to the followers of Christ. Now, we some choose to walk in a greater blessings than others because of the personal decisions they make. Some choose to make the right decisions. Some choose to make the wrong decisions. But the, the grace of God, the love of God, the word of God, the promise of God is available. I have a promise Bible at home, a promise book. It's all the promises in the Bible. It's awesome. I've been reading it every day. It's, it's incredible. They're not just for Joey Brown. It's not like, oh, here, this, here's this little book that God gave Joey, all the Bible promises, alphabetically. Like, wow. Wow, look at me. Like, whoo, whoo, whoo. Like, just like, wow. You know, like, Elisha or something. No. I could give it to any of you. I could give you my book that was given to me a few weeks ago. I could give you my book. Living Bible, by the way. You know, so it's a nice, it's a good, it's easy kind of read. You know, it's like a little easier translation. And it's like, Living Bible translation, all the promises of God in categorically, alphabetically. A couple of pages for each one. I could give it to you, and you could take it home, and it has the same potential application in your life as a follower of Christ as it does for me. It has no more power for me than it does for you when I read it in the morning. If we go by the Promise Bibles over at Calvary Bookstore, we all get the same Promise Bible. It's not like, hey, you get more than I get. You know, like, we're reading the same promises. There's just a little more for them and a little less for us. No. You see... The Ark of the Covenant is carried on poles. The Word of God, the Gospel, it's carried on poles. The promises are carried on poles. So don't take what God has defined a certain way and put it on a cart and say, well, he'll bless us anyways. You carry it on poles. And, you know, really the key thing here, too, is really the holiness of the Lord is at stake. You see, like, this is, this is the holiness of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, too. What really is at stake here is the gospel. That there's one meter between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat that represents Christ separating sinful men from a holy God. It has to be carried the right way. There, Jesus is all-inclusive, like I said, but he is exclusive in the cross. So when you put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, it's like saying the gospel isn't the only way to be saved. You can be saved this way. That's what it's like. And that's not true. We're all saved through the blood of Christ on the cross for our substitution. And we're all raised from the grave through the hope of the resurrection and what he's accomplished. So really, though it wasn't David's intent, the moment he put that Ark of the Covenant on the cart, he's really, in a, in a symbolic way, presenting a different gospel. He's saying there's a different way to get to the mercy seat. There's a different way to do these things that are the most holy things of the Lord. 
That's really what he's doing here. And I love the fact that after, well, David, of course, is angry. It's like, well, I, I thought there were more ways. I thought it was Jesus plus this or Jesus minus that or whatever. I don't know what David thought, but like, he obviously didn't apply the scriptures clearly on the most obvious, basic, holy thing. How do you approach God? How do you come to God? It's through the Ark of the Covenant and what it represents. And he made it a flippant thing. As it says in Hebrews, trampling the God asunder, under a foot asunder. In a very real way, he does it. But look how faithful God is. The ark goes over to Edom's house. And it's like, Oban's like, wow, man, man, the corn's growing, the wheat's growing. <laughs> the vineyard's like, look at the grapes this year. Like, he's prospering. Oban Edom is blessed. David goes home like, man, party's over. But Oban Edom is blessed. See, our God is a blessing God when we understand who he is and we keep it right with him in our relationship with him. Just because he struck down Uzzah doesn't mean he's going to strike down Obed-Edom. God is consistent. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus' name. So even when he's chasing the events that happen here, he still, once the ark is there, Obed-Edom didn't do anything wrong. And he's like, you know, under the sprout, spot where the glory comes out. He's just where the blessings are. And he's blessed. He's so blessed that everyone knows he's blessed. And David's like, well, he's blessed. So I guess God's not mad at everybody. What do we need to learn here? Verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, all that belongs to him, and because of the ark of God. Wow, wait a second. We got cursed because of the ark of God, and he's blessed because of the ark of God. Right. If you come, the, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to follow through him. If you come that way, you're blessed. If you try and come another way, you're not. So David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. David figured it out. He took inventory and figured out what he did wrong. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, yeah, he's got them. Now there's people, now there's Levites carrying the ark on poles. That's right. Just don't get mad because you got chastened or whatever. Figure out why. Make it right. Put that ark on the poles and have the Levites carry it. And he goes six paces, and then he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, shouting with the sound of a trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, uh, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David uh, uh, leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among all the whole multitude of Israel, both women and men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and cake of raisins. So all the people departed, departed, and they, everyone was in this house, and they went home, and they were excited. It was blessed. He threw this big party for everybody, and they had departed and gone home. And he had fed everybody, and everyone enjoyed it, except Michael. Except Michael. That's what bitterness does. Even when it's a joyful day for the entire nation. It's a joyful day for the people of God. And Michael is just filled with bitterness. Against David, against the Lord. She's not a part of the peace offerings and the burnt offerings. She's not a part of her husband dancing or whatever's going on. She just despises it all as the daughter of Saul. It's too bad. You know, we don't ever want to miss the party that God's throwing. Amen? You don't ever want to miss the party that God's throwing. 
God's throwing a party. You be part of God's party. Be a part of the party. Last thing you want to do is sit back in judgment of the party. We want to rejoice over God's blessings on other people's lives. We want to rejoice over God's favor on other ministries and the, and the good fruit that they're producing. We want to rejoice when other people rejoice. We want to rejoice in their increase. We don't want to be sitting back like, well, you know, I don't know, but that's human nature to do that. It is. Oh, it's so sweet when you can rejoice over God throwing a party for his people. And it doesn't have to have your fingerprints on it. You don't have to be a part of it. But you can just choose to rejoice in it. There was a huge party for Jehovah in Jerusalem that day. And everybody's in on it. But Michael's up there in the windows like, I'm not going to be a part of that. Too bad. It's too bad that her hurt being stumbled by her father, her hurt and all that happened, marrying the other guy and not being with David and coming back to the city and be with David. And the hurt, it just, it just festered and it became bitterness and rotten to the core of her soul. And that's why it's so important we don't get bitter. We have to get better. Give David credit to, well, he didn't know what was going on in the window with his wife. One of his wives, who even knows? But the woman that was his first love, or his first wife. This was the woman he gave himself to physically. So whether, whatever, the, whatever the case is, he killed a double portion of Philistines to be the dowry to get this woman his wife. He married this woman. It was like a monarchal wedding. It was a beautiful thing. And this is the woman he was with as a man. And this is where it ended up. He, he kept on living. She stumbled or not by everybody in her life. She, and David had nothing to do with her marrying the other man. At least the scriptures doesn't imply that. So verse 20, we finished the chapter. But what a great party. Everyone else was going home happy and praising the Lord. They all departed and they were happy and blessed. Then David returned to bless his household. So he blessed the whole nation. Catch the context. He blessed the whole nation. And now he's going home and bless his household. It's a great day. It's a, it's a happy day. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one base fellow shamelessly uncovers himself. I can just picture David going like, what? Can you just picture like, what? Like, you ever know sometimes when you have a great day with the Lord, someone wants to rain on your parade? Seriously. Man, when we had that event in 2001 at Anaheim, Oh, it was so wonderful. All the bands and hundreds of people came forward. And then someone came up to me for, on staff and just said from Calvary, he's like, hey, you know, if you'd booked bigger bands, there would have been 12,000 people here, not 2,000 people. And 2,000 people would have come forward instead of 200 people. That was like the highlight of ministry for me that night. And I let that statement and that comment robbed me of my joy that night. My wife is a witness. I couldn't sleep that night. I was so upset. We were at a hotel in Anaheim. We were put up there. It should have been the happiest night, the the crown jewel of all that I'd done in ministry for 20 years. And I let one person's negative comments. He said years later just that that was just his opinion, which just goes to prove what I told everybody. Just because you think it doesn't mean you need to say it. And opinions are the cheapest commodity on planet Earth because everyone's got one. But I let, it, I let it crush me. And I think how crushing this would have been for David 
on such a joyful day. He's coming home to bless his family. And here comes Michael. Like, oh, look at you. It's, it's a bummer. She's mocking how glorious was the king. And But look at David. This is what happens when he gets going. He just fires right back. So David said in verse 21 to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. <laughs> wow. Telenovela for sure. And all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. Now I will be even more indignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. In other words, I know my heart. You know my heart. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Oh, man. Obviously, if you're married, don't ever talk to your spouse like, like this, either male or female. This is bad. This is very bad. This is just, but it's very human. See, David went home in verse 20 to strengthen his household, but then he has to tell Michael, well, that was your household, but this is my father's household. God rejected your dad's household, and God's appointed me instead of your dad. These are facts that are known, but they, they don't have to be said, but you know, in these kind of things, it brings out the worst, doesn't it? I mean, if you're 50 years old on planet Earth, I'm sure you've had something like this. Maybe not so with your spouse, but when you just say things, you know, like, are we going there? You know, like, are we going there? Are we, go- are we going there? That's why the Bible says soft answer turns away wrath. But, we, you know, I'm trying not to go there, not with Jennifer, just in general, human race. Any fool can escalate a situation. It takes a godly woman and a godly man to de-escalate a situation and let it go. So in Asian cultures, in Asian movies and TV shows, they really highly esteem like just holding your peace and not having to say anything. And I really appreciate that. I really do. And it goes back to the 70s when we had the TV show Kung Fu. Right? I never seen anything like it, but if you grew up watching Kung Fu, you know, their Kung Fu was like, you could provoke him, you could talk trash to him, and he could take it no matter what. But once you touched him, Remember the movie, whoa, the movie would start and James Conn start doing the kung fu stuff. You can say anything you want, man, I'm talking to you, you know, the drunk cowboy, whatever. But once you touched him, that's his space, right? But I remember he's going like, it's the first memories in my life of someone exercising self-control. Because I had no self-control. I got suspended for fighting in sixth grade and seventh grade. The whole idea of being like, sensei, and just taking it, that's not Western culture. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that in the Asian culture for sure. No one restrained themselves right here. And if Michael could have restrained herself or David could have restrained himself, it would have been a lot better for everybody, right? Right? Amen. So this could be you and your boss, you and your coworker, this could be your spouse, your adult parents, your, your adult children. Someone's got to exercise self-control in this situation and not let it escalate. And in the end, David has to get the last word in. I will be honored. And then verse 22, she never had any children. So it's a pretty unhappy ending, but you know, life works like that sometimes, right? You have a great day, and then some days just have an unhappy ending. But you know, on, on, on a, a day with an unhappy ending, it's still, I can say from my own life, if you've exercised self-control, it's not as unhappy as it could have been. Amen? I mean, there's just some days that are bad, but you're like, well, you know, I'll say something like just like, well, I didn't get an A, but at least I got a B minus. Because I'll grade myself like, oh, that. 
But then really, I got to ask Jennifer, what's my grade? Because that's, that's the real, right? We all overscore ourselves. Like in pro surfing, we, oh, it was an eight. It's like, no, it was a five, five. Like we overscore ourselves. But still, it's a sad ending on a glorious day. But life goes on. So much application in these two chapters. I hope you're encouraged by them. I hope they build you up. 